Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue this study, the second half of the second chapter of Ephesians. You'll recall in the first half of this chapter, Paul speaks about our new position in Christ Jesus, and the key word there was corporately. In the second half, he speaks about our new position in Christ corporately, and he begins to introduce this concept of unity. Now, the concept of unity, and then there, and then love that is the motivating factor to that unity, will really be the theme from this portion of the cha- of chapter two all the way through the rest of the letter. So, if there's if there are three major words in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, first is grace, then unity, and then uh, then love. And it makes sense that they would be in somewhat of that order. At least grace first, unity and love might can be interchanged, but certainly. It's important that we understand those three. In our time together last time, we studied a critical concept with regard to our maturing relationship in Jesus Christ. He has to be our priority. If we're going to mature, he's got to be our priority in life. The way Paul puts it in his letter to the Colossians is, so that he might have preeminence or priority in everything. The moment that we truly come to grips with that fact, once that hits us in the face and we and we can absorb it and believe it and live by it, that's going to be a major spiritual tipping point in each of our lives. It's like a domino. Once we get that part right, then everything else is going to fall into place. Until we get that part right, until we get that concept down that Jesus Christ has got to be preeminent. He cannot just be important. And I fear that for far too many of us, in fact, dare I say, for all of us, at one time or another, in any given day, Jesus Christ is not preeminent. He's really important to us. And I dare, I would not say, any, I, would, I would be confident in saying there's nobody in this room that would deny that Jesus Christ is important to us. But is he preeminent? Is he the most important thing? That's the difference. It's one of the major differences between the immature believer in Christ and the mature or the maturing believer in Jesus Christ. Is he the most important thing in life? Or is he just one of the most important things? In the last half of chapter 2, which concerns our position in Christ from a corporate standpoint, this chapter, this, this portion can be divided up into two, or actually three different sections. One we've already studied, two, one we're in the process of studying, and then the third we will study very, very soon. The first is the fact of the union between Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ. We studied that in verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that word circumcision is a, is a bad word for them. It's interesting. Sometimes we have certain words that are as they're boating to, to say in Christianity. We do need to be careful about them. There's a whole host of words coming out of our mouth like they're a lot more than just the, the things that you think about on the, on the surface. But it's interesting that when Paul writes, sometimes he uses the bad words. <laughs> the, the, he always says the word the bad words. It's not, it's not an excuse for us to go crazy with that. But he's being very descriptive here. The thing that he calls them, the akrobusia, that's, that was a bad word at the time. 
We're his workmanship. I'm sorry. Therefore, remember that formerly you were the Gentiles in the flesh who were called this bad word by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember those five things? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So that's the fact of the union. There is a union between Jew and Gentile. Now, as we move on to this next section, don't forget that last little phrase. Who has been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. It's going to come up again tonight. Paul's going to refer back to that obliquely, but he's still going to be referring back to that. So we have the explanation of the union in verses 14 through 18, our passage that we're in the middle of studying right now, and then the consequences of that union in verses 19 through 22. Gentile believers are in him. That's us. We are in him, not because of any particular merit of our own. Jewish believers are in him, not because of any particular merit of their own. So what's the common denominator between Jews and Gentiles? In him, because of no particular merit of our own. You see that? Whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile, there's no particular merit of our own. And we're both in him, corporately in this body of Christ. Again, do you see what Paul's doing? Because up until 10, 15, even 20 years from now, I want you, if you haven't studied Ephesians that long, I hope it hasn't taken you that long to go through it again. But if you're reading through the book of Ephesians, I want you to have this structure. Because if you get the structure and you remember that, then the details will come back to you. I want you to remember that chapter 2 is divided into two parts. First part, grace. Second part, unity and love. First part is our salvation individually. Our position in the body of Christ individually. With all of its privileges. We got there by grace through faith, just like everybody else. But with all of its privileges. Second part, we need to remember, we're not the only ones in the body of Christ. We would like to think so sometimes. Because we're so... We're so absorbed in ourselves, and part of this is just the way that we're wired as human beings. We have self-preservation and all those kind of things. But, but when, we're, when we're wired up to think of only ourselves, or to think of ourselves, rather, when we're wired to think of ourselves, let's not think only of ourselves. That's what Paul's doing here in this chapter. That's why he begins individually and moves corporately. Everybody following that pattern. So the common denominator is that we're in him. We are in him. And if there's to be any unity in the body of Christ, we've got to realize that we're not the only ones in Him. At the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to be amazed at the sea of people that will be there with us. I almost sounded like Arabian and Latin to you when you go down the aisle. Most surely we will not have the old Sunday school service anymore. We had not last last first time I went to Sunday school service. Tell you anyway, the person at the airport had not been remodeled, and it was it was chaos. They, they, they didn't believe in line, and everybody just kept coming this way and this way. And I have line issues anyway. I don't like waiting in line, but I sure don't like people cutting in line, repeatedly cutting in line. So finally, uh, finally, the um, this this one large fellow cut in line in front of me, just moved the stuff right this whole bag right in front of me, and I had already been waiting a significant period of time before I get up to the gate. I was looking at my watch. I had time, but it was starting to get a little short. 
So it's, it's not just a, a lack of hostility. There's a mutual respect between brother and brother and brother and sister in Jesus Christ. And the key, the key, the priority, the priority of the key to spiritual growth, as we concluded last time, is the priority more than just to know about him. Amen? I mean, just to know him. That was his, the highest priority that he had. Amen. Now, tonight, we move on to the remainder of this thought in verses 14 and 15, or at least the first half of verse 15. Again, for he himself is our peace. We studied that last week. We remember that the, the apostles at the very beginning of the sentence, he himself is our peace. It's all focused upon Christ, the key, the priority being Jesus Christ. Now, he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Verse 14 we have this phrase, who made both groups into one. The death that Christ died for us reconciled us to God, breaking the barrier, breaking down the barrier of sin and its penalty that separated the infinite, holy, personal created universe from his creation. That's an abbreviated doctrine or explanation of the doctrine of reconciliation. Oftentimes, when we see the word peace in the New Testament, that's the first thing that comes to our mind. The doctrine of reconciliation. There is enmity between God and man. That is not any enmity. It's an enmity because of the work of Christ on the cross, right? I mean, most of the time, that's what we think. But, having just said that, please make a special note. That's not what's going on here. It, what, what Paul is not teaching us peace now that exists between God and the believer. Granted, most of the time when you see that word in this kind of a setting, Paul is, or other authors, are speaking of the doctrine of reconciliation between man and God. But not here. He's not speaking about reconciliation here. When Paul uses the word or the phrase, who made both into one, or both groups into one, in my Bible, and it should be in your spiritual translation, it's something like that. In New American Standard, the term groups into is in italics. Actually, the, the Greek text just says, who made both one. Now, the word both, and actually the word one too, is neutered there. So, it cannot refer to man and God being made into one. If that was the case, it would have most likely have had to been masculine. Because both man and God would you know, require masculine, masculine pronouns. Because it's neuter, it has to refer to Jews and Gentiles. The group of Jews and the group of Gentiles. Hence, the New American Standard translation, who made both groups into one. 
sometimes people have a lot of problems when they see things in italics because that's not in the original. Well, no, it's not in the original, but it's legitimate for an English translation to include that. And this is one of those places where the editors are going to think they get their new magic pill and they got the exact same thing. They understood the Luther there, and instead of leaving any doubt with this maybe season of God and man being reconciled, we know for sure that it's speaking about the Jew and the Gentile. So it's very legitimate. What, what the New American Standard did was very, very legitimate there. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups of one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. The identification of this dividing wall or this wall of division has been the source of much discussion in theological circles and New Testament circles. And I have no intention of confusing the issue tonight by covering with you all five of the potential options which they could be, they could be meant by this phrase, the dividing wall. The reason I'm not going to do it is I think the text does it for us very well. Thank you very much. I understand why you have to do that stuff in seminary and Bible college, but it's not necessary to do it here. Instead of confusing me, I want to, uh, if you want to know what all five of them are, I'd be happy to discuss them with Christ with you tonight. But what I'd rather do is move straight to what I understand as the appropriate interpretation. In order to do that, you need to allow me something here. First, I, I need to sort out the very difficult word order in the original Greek. And then we'll see, I trust, why some of the translators have difficulty in verses 14 and 15. As I read them, they may be difficult in your Bible. If they do, the reason why they be difficult, if it's difficult, is because the word order is extremely difficult. And it helps sometimes to have more than one Bible in your home. I know some of you have Bibles that have different translations in columns. If you can ever come up with one of those, it'd be great. It's not a great Bible to bring to church all the time, but it's a great Bible to study through if you want to. Because if you're reading through translations, you're reading through a translation, and you look here, and the New American Standard says this. If you look at the New International Version, and it says it slightly different. If you look at like the Net Bible, and it says it a little bit different. The reason it says it differently is not because one of the translators is a knucklehead. It's because the, the underlying Greek is more difficult. So there's there's dispute as how it should have been here, but this is one of those this is one of those passages. So first we have to untangle this word order. And so I'm going to propose to you that this is how it ought to be translated based upon the underlying text. For he himself is our peace. So far, so good. He made both groups into one and destroyed the middle wall of partition. Up to that point, it should be exactly the same. Almost all the translations will say almost exactly that. Whether it's NIV, New American Standard, New King James, they all should be the same up to that point. Here's where it gets a little difficult. He himself is our peace. He made both groups into one and destroyed the middle wall of partition, comma, the hostility. This is, this is crucial. In the Greek text, the word hostility is in apposition to the middle wall of partition. They go together. In fact, it's right after in the Greek text. So there shouldn't be anything between the middle wall of partition and the hostility. And if we can get that, then we're not going to have as hard a time figuring out what that middle wall of partition is. Let me tell you what one of the possibilities is. 
There was a wall of partition that was three or four feet high that separated the Jewish area from the Gentile area in the, in the temple. Israel is still standing on that portion. It's called Rosa. And there's a placard on that that says something along the lines of, if anybody is, if any Gentile is, I'm going to paraphrase, if any Gentile is foolish enough to come inside this particular area of the temple, you have only yourself to blame for the harm that's going to come. And that was a wall that separated Jew and Gentile physically in the temple. I don't believe that that's specifically what's being spoken about here because we are several hundred miles away from the temple and that particular wall hasn't been taken down. It won't be taken down for another eight years. So at least that's, that's one of the things that's being spoken of here. But we don't, have to, we don't have to try to get too fancy with it. The dividing wall is the enmity. In, in the Greek text, they're in apposition to each other. It's not that hard to figure out, really, if you just go back to the original text itself. So you see, in, in the, the New American Standard, they don't, they don't use the word enmity until after that phrase in verse 15, by abolishing in the flesh the enmity. But that's not how it reads in the Greek text. It's the dividing wall, comma, the enmity. So the dividing wall that needs to be torn down is this enmity between Jew and Gentile. It's not a physical wall. This is a metaphorical wall that's being spoken of here. The hostility, the enmity, the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles has been destroyed. And this is what was accomplished on the cross. The dividing wall was destroyed. Now, that dividing wall having been destroyed, going further, by abolishing his flesh, the enmity which is the law of commandment contained in the ordinance. What was that got destroyed? Even to our passage in Genesis. What was it that seemed to divide Jews and Gentiles in such a great way? Circumcision. Thank you. Exactly right. Circumcision did. Now, the people who were calling the uncircumcised that bad word, remember Paul says these are the so-called circumcised. These were, these were people that were Jew by race only, not by regeneration. But... But you see, the law was a good thing. Remember that? Remember Romans chapter 7? Paul rhetorically asked, is the law bad? Heaven forbid it's not bad. God wrote it. There's nothing wrong with the law. And in just a minute, I'm going to go over some of the, some of the things, that, the purposes of the law. But here what's happened is that the hostility between Jew and Gentile has been destroyed. And this was accomplished by making or rendering the law inoperative for those who are in Christ. Not by destroying the law. Two different Greek terms out there. By rendering it inoperative. In fact, this is the Greek term uh, katalesis. A katalesis doesn't mean to destroy. It means to render something inoperative. Or if you prefer, to nullify but not to destroy. Remember what Jesus said when he was here on earth? People were, were accusing him of, of breaking the law, and he said, Sir, I don't break the law. He said, I fulfill it for you. But once he dies his death on the cross, that renders the law inoperative. It doesn't destroy it. Now, this thought is completely consistent with other places in Paul's writing where Paul states that the that the believer has been re- rendered inoperative from the law, 
or that the believer is not under the Mosaic law. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And then Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Romans 7, 1 through 6, and Romans 10, 4. Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. Galatians chapter 2, 19, and Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. All say the same thing. Bottom line is the believer in this dispensation is not under the Mosaic Law as a rule of life. Now, does that mean the law is bad? Heaven forbid. No, it's not bad. In fact, nine of the ten commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Anybody know which one is not? Sabbath observance. Exactly. That's the only one that's not repeated in the New Testament. Now, does, does this not mean that we ought not set aside time for worship? Well, of course, we, we can do that. But and much of the, much of the moral aspect of the law is repeated in the New Testament. So occasionally, I run across well-meaning Christians who hold that the believer in this dispensation is still under the Mosaic law. Perhaps you run into these folks and you hear them say something like, "Well, they don't know." But frankly, I've never run into anybody who's a real serious student. Both Old Testament and New Testament. Serious and honest. Should I say it without being arrogantly confident? But they're serious and they're confident, and you just don't hear people say that because it's unsustainable from the biblical viewpoint. And this is, I say that by the way, with all due respect to those individuals who would hold that view. But this is what's being said here. The reason people say that, I think it's. It's symptomatic. Poor and sloppy Bible scholars. It's symptomatic of a Christian community that long ago abandoned the centrality and the priority of Bible teaching. I was recently reading an author who wrote around 1950, and he was inclined to prefer Bible teaching. The idea of moved away from Bible teaching to a more community type atmosphere where everything takes place. If you go back and read J.W. Mason, Mason was a Princeton professor. Uh, Mason in the 20s, as he moves, is defying the fact that modernism is movement and people are moving away from Bible teaching. Uh, go back to the 18, middle of the 1800s with Charles Spurgeon. He's defying the fact that Bible teaching is no longer uh, just there's nothing new under the sun. This seems to be the present time. If you go back to Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah would have been defying the fact that Bible teaching was So we have, we have, it's stated here unquizzingly that by the death that he died, that's why I told you a minute ago, remember that phrase by the blood of Christ. The death that he died, he rendered inoperative the law of commandments contained in ordinance. This is the entirety of the Mosaic Law. Sometimes people like to do this. Well, yes, you're not under the ceremonial aspect of the Mosaic Law anymore, but we are under the moral or the legal aspect of the law. Well, you can't do that. The law was always considered to be one whole. One part goes away, the whole part goes away. You break one of it, you break the whole thing. So that's an improper So the death of Christ died on the cross took away this enmity 
how did how did it destroy the ummah? It didn't destroy the law. It destroyed the enmity by nullifying the law or by or by rendering it inoperative. Do you see the distinction I make? This is a really important distinction. He destroyed the dividing wall. He doesn't destroy the law. He, the law is rendered inoperative. Going back to Paul a moment ago, the law cannot save life. Oh, there's the there's the the phrase again. It's not the rule of life when it's working. So it's what. But what, what, what were its purposes when it was the rule of life? Well, you've got the sheet of paper in your hands that when I gave it to you, so we we studied this before. For the sake of time, we'll have to move through it fairly quickly. There were ten purposes of White Pentecost, as identified as purposes of the Mosaic Law. First, to reveal the holiness of God. Second, to reveal the sinfulness of man. Third, to reveal the standard of holiness required of those who would walk in fellowship with Him. Fourth, to supervise physical, mental, and spiritual development of redeemed of redeemed Israelites until they should come to maturity in Christ. Fifth, to be the unifying principle that made the establishment of the nation possible. Sixth, to separate Israel from the nations to become a kingdom of priests. Seven, to make provision for forgiveness of sins and restoration of fellowship. Eight, to make provision for a redeemed people redeem people to worship. Ninth, to provide a test whether one was in the kingdom over which God rules. And tenth, to reveal Jesus Christ or to reveal the coming of Messiah. And Dr. Pentecost concluded this article on the purpose of the law. So let's I just took those ten points by saying the following. There was in the law that which was revelatory of the holiness of God. There was also that which was regulatory. Obviously, anything that's revelatory is, is every bit as valid today as it was yesterday. If the law says that God is holy, just because the law has has been rendered inoperative doesn't mean that God's no longer holy. It had to be the regulation of the law, not the revelation. And this is extremely important, Dr. Pentecost concluded, to remember that the law of Moses was given to a redeemed people, not a redeemer. It was given to a redeemed people. So anybody that says that one must keep the law in order to be saved, whether you live under the Old Testament or the New Testament, is just woefully uninformed about what the purpose of the law was in the first place. It was never given so that one might keep it and play in the church. Rather than using the law to witness to the Jews, often use the law as an excuse to look down their noses at their Gentile neighbors who they consider fat sheep. Hence, you see the ones that weren't even saved at all calling these people uncircumcised by their so-called circumcision. This was a problem, and it separated Jew and Gentile. But that, that separation has been destroyed because the law has been nullified, or the law has been the law that was hostile to Jews. The law was good. The law was not hostile to Gentiles. But it was the wrong use, the inappropriate use of the law that resulted in hostility from both groups. 
that's not the purpose of the law. In the law, it says they're supposed to be evangelizing these Gentiles. But they don't do it. So that which was supposed to be good turned into a source of hostility. That, that happens sometimes. Something that should have been wonderful. You have a birthday party. You invite the whole family. It should be something wonderful, a time of celebration. And then a fight breaks out. Something that had every bit of intention for being good turned into into opportunity for evil. All of us have seen that happen, whether in our family or with friends or something else. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law was not the hostility. The, The hostility came from the wrong use of the law. It just, the law has been rendered inoperative. So to solve this problem, Christ, by virtue of the death that he died, the phrase is paralleled earlier by the blood of Christ in verse 13. He rendered the law ineffective. And it's very, very important. The, the Greek term nusos, which means destroys, is not used of the law. Nusos is used as the dividing law of the hostility. That's what God destroys. But he renders inoperative. source of division has been rendered Both groups are one. Let me go back to that one. The good and the bad. Both groups are one. That being the case, there's no justification for hatred, antagonism,